by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. So this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just, we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Leah Tsamaglu. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SER, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today on the show... The idea around the yuck factor is that even though people understand the science and they understand that the water's safe, they still don't want to drink it just because the idea of, of drinking it is a bit yucky. Recycled water. Would you drink it? Or do you find the whole idea too hard to swallow? And ditching antibiotics to using honey. Why some researchers are pushing for Manuka honey to be used as a first intervention treatment for wound infection. But up first... Agriculture, mining and climate change are three factors driving up the salinity levels in our freshwater ecosystems. Higher concentrations of salt in places like rivers can drastically change these ecosystems, where vertebrates and invertebrates alike struggle to adapt to these new conditions. Renee Douse is from the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, and for the better part of the last 15 years, has studied freshwater ecology. Renee says although she's observed how higher salinity levels can create problems, we still don't know what all these problems might look like. I don't think that people are aware of how much rivers are used as a dumping ground for industry. And I also think people would be really surprised to know that, in general, wastewater is actually more saline when it leaves a wastewater treatment plant than when it enters, and that's a result of the treatment process. Meaning it has more salt in it. It's more salty. Why is that bad? Because freshwater systems are very dilute. They don't have very much salt in them, um, and we're elevating these concentrations. So the biota that's plants and animals that are in these systems are adapted for a dilute environment and suddenly we're chucking all this salt in there. It would be like waking up tomorrow morning and yourself eating three tablespoons of salt. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't feel so great. Does this have any repercussion for humans in terms of raising salinity levels within freshwater ecosystems? There's massive both economic and environmental implications for increasing uh, salinity in fresh waters. I mean, for a start, we irrigate all of our agriculture with water that we take out of either aquifers or rivers. So if we're pumping saline water into the rivers, the salinity can rise to an extent that we can't put it on our crops, we can't water our crops with it anymore. Um, And it also has big implications in terms of drinking water. If the water's so saline that we need to use reverse osmosis to make it safe to drink, this is a highly expensive process. And ironically, in turn, has a whole stack of salt that then needs to be disposed of from the reverse osmosis. Well, what is this reverse osmosis process exactly? You would take salty water, whether it be from a saline river or from, say, the ocean, and it runs through a series of membranes. This is highly simplified, where the salt is taken out through several processes and the result is, say, one section with fresh potable water and another section of the brine. 
Um, so the potable water is what we want for human consumption and for our industry. And then we're stuck with this brine that we need to get rid of. What do we normally do with it? Uh, it's quite often pumped out in the ocean. I think that that was going to be the idea for this desalinisation plant that was going to be built out at... Malabar Quartz. Yeah, that's the one. To go back to the freshwater ecosystems... And particularly within these ecosystems, looking at something that's the mayfly nymph. Yes, that's right. Who's this thing? <laughs> so most people know adult mayflies as the little animal that apparently only lives for a couple of days and it mates and dies. Mayfly and lots of other insects actually have their early life stages in the aquatic environment. So many, many flies, some moths will have what we call the larval stage and then also a nymphal stage in the aquatic environment. And then they bust out at certain temperatures and that's when they have a much shorter-lived adult stage. So a lot of insects spend more time in the freshwater systems than what they do in the terrestrial systems and I think it's really important to note with insects that there's hardly any insects in saline environments so many insects life cycles rely heavily on freshwater systems. So these um, mayfly nymphs are living in freshwater but if these freshwater basins are becoming more concentrated with salt that's going to throw them off. That's exactly right and it's not only the mayflies there's a group that we refer to as EPT taxa and this stands for ephemeroptera which is the mayfly which is our scientific name for the order of mayfly. P stands for plecopteran which is a stonefly and T for trichopteran which is a caddisfly and all of these insects are considered highly salinity sensitive. Right. So what are the implications for those flies then? Basically, the implications are going to be, at best, a reduction in biodiversity and abundance, and I guess at worst, complete population loss in certain communities. And as I was saying before, because these animals are both aquatic and terrestrial, a complete population decline in the aquatic environment then has a flow-on effect into the terrestrial environment. So the, I guess, ecological significance of them once they reach adult form is that they break down matter? It's actually the juveniles that break down the matter. At least for mayflies, they're sort of like little vacuum cleaners in a river. They go around and scrape, some of them scrape algae off rocks and some of them will break down detritus. Um, They're also, in the aquatic environment, a really, really important food source for animals that are higher up in the food chain, fish, larger decapods, and even things like platypus, love little crust, little invertebrae, yeah. What is the answer here? Like, how would you, having conducted your research, kind of look at a higher level to be like, is this a problem that we can really resolve? (laughs) You're just asking me for the answer to the world, Jake. (laughs) Look, the findings that we had with the mayfly research are absolutely novel and challenge the extent of our knowledge of what's going on physiologically with these animals in relation to salinity. Our concern is that the problem might be much larger than what we actually know because there's so little 
data on the impacts of salinity on insects. So what our research has uncovered now is really just a baseline and there's a really urgent need for more research to be done on the impacts, particularly the physiological impacts of salinity on freshwater insects before we can even know what to do. I liken it to there being a big medical problem in a population and the doctors don't know what it is. If you don't know what's going on with something, how do you know how to treat it? And that's where I feel we're at with this. Renee Douse from the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. Climate change, growth in population and drought are three uncontrollable factors that are contributing to global water shortages. These stresses have forced us to look for alternative and more sustainable ways to source and store the water we currently have. Recycled water, meaning the water that comes from things like residential waste and stormwater and is then treated and filtered, is one solution to deal with these problems. However, the stigma around recycled water as dirty still remains, with some physically repulsed by the idea we might soon be drinking recycled potable water. Daniel Uwe is an honorary fellow from Victoria University. I caught up with him to talk about where the recycled water movement came from and why some people have such a visceral reaction to its use. It is a difficult problem, this long-term water planning, when the climate and rainfall patterns are very uh, unpredictable from year to year. Even in flood times, times of water abundance, water recycling can be very valuable. In Queensland, the water recycling plant was switched on during the floods. Um, because the other water, the reservoir sources were polluted as, you know, the rivers overflowed and sediments and pollutants all got washed into the dams and water, recycled water was the only good water that they had straight out of the treatment plant. So it was used then? So it has been used, yeah. Around the country we've got different sets of circumstances in, with relation to recycled water. In Western Australia there's, there's a continued and prolonged drought um, which means that the dam levels are very low, so they're using aquifer recharge. So they take stormwater and household water, they treat it and filter it, and then they recharge the aquifer deep underground, and they leave it there for a few months, and then they redraw it out as part of the water supply. So, I mean, without that, Perth would be really short of water at the moment. In Sydney a few years ago, we built a desalination plant, which I don't know what the status of it is, whether it's being used, but... Do any other um, states use desalination? Uh, yes, there are currently six desalination plants in Australia. The technologies underlying seawater desalination and water recycling are very similar. At the heart of, heart of the process is reverse osmosis through a membrane, which gets out all the biological and chemical matter uh, when it's treated to a high standard. I guess the difference is that desalinated water, in, in many cases, varies from circumstance to circumstance, can require more energy because if, if this makes sense seawater is actually less clean and requires more treatment than recycled water what we're really talking about when at the heart of the debate around recycled water is potable water for drinking 
currently in places, there's a new development on the outskirts of Melbourne, it's peri-urban, called Cal Calo. They use dual piping systems. So they have one pipe which delivers recycled water, and that's for non-drinking use, uh, for example, for your garden, and they've got the normal reticulated water supply, which is for potable use. And that's currently in place, so people are essentially in Melbourne drinking yes, recycled water. There's a few places around the country where that's the case. The big jump is to move to potable. I guess the impetus for full potable would be that the plumbing is simpler and the delivery of water. So rather than having two separate systems, you've just got one system which is simpler and more integrated. Why do you think Australians are so disgusted by the idea of recycled water? This idea of the yuck factor, the emotional response that I've discussed that some people feel towards recycled water is perceived by a lot of decision makers as a block to the introduction of recycled water. The idea around the yuck factor is that even though people understand the science and they understand that the water's safe, they still don't want to drink it just because the idea of, of drinking it is a bit yucky, right? Psychologists in the US, a guy called Rosen, who did experiments where he put a, a plastic cockroach into a glass of water and then tried to get people to drink it even though they knew the cockroach was simply plastic and didn't actually have germs. It's just the idea of it. He argues that this is contagion thinking and this is kind of essential to our psychological understanding of how processes of contagion happen. I think some of the, later, the, the research that is built onto that looks in a more broad cultural sense to show that what is considered dirty is actually quite culturally laden and can be changed. So, for example, in Singapore, they've got the use of potable recycled water under the label New Water. In Vindhoek, Namibia, the capital of Namibia, They've had various forms of water recycling for over 40 years and it's just culturally accepted there. So I think the, the argument has to be made that this inevitable idea about that the yuck factor is always there, it's innate, it's unchangeable, is kind of needs to be challenged because the empirical cases overseas tell us that no, once recycled water is, is accepted, just like rubbish recycling, people don't necessarily see it as dirty. And I've got to say, I mean, compared to the rest of the world, really, we're quite spoilt for water here. In most parts, we're pretty much bathing in drinking water in Australia. Would you say that Australians are sort of spoilt with, with the water quality that we have here? In parts of the country, that's certainly true. In, in Melbourne, we're one of only a, only a few cities in the world with protected catchments. So I think a lot of people in Melbourne have this idea that the rain falls into the protected catchments of the Yarra Ranges and it falls down and it, it trickles down quite purely into our water supply. Um, this is obviously not the case in places with high density uh, populations and cities such as Asia and Europe where the idea of water recycling, at least unintentional water recycling, is not so foreign. So people over there, for example, in continental Europe are used to the idea that they live on a long river, there's factories and other things, there's communities living up river and their outputs go into the river and then it has to be purified. So it's de facto recycled water that they've been drinking. How far off do you think this would be to become Australian-wide? Non-potable forms of water recycling are definitely on the agenda now and they're being incorporated into new developments in terms of dual pipe supply. Potable is probably a while off, especially since there's been development of these desalination plans. I don't think it's on the immediate future. We're probably a little while off, but the conversation is definitely emerging around it um, and the benefits are coming to be understood in terms of sustainability, uh, in terms of water supply. 
And you, Daniel, have you had a glass of recycled? Oh, yeah, I have in a number of places. And what have you noticed? Like, what is it? How does it differ to drinking, you know, straight out of the tap? Uh, it's just water. It's uh, from a chemical perspective, I think it's just the same. It's actually more highly treated. I think in uh, pl- certain places around the world, they've had to add supplements to it to make it taste more like the water that people are used to because pure water is tasteless, obviously. But tap waters around the world have a very particular taste based on the impurities. Daniel Uwe, Honorary Fellow in the College of Health and Biomedicine at Victoria University. Historically, honey has been used for its antibacterial properties, but the favouring of synthetic antibiotics over the naturally occurring resource is a missed opportunity. That's the opinion of Daniel Buzo from the I3 Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Daniel's research looks at using manuka honey as a first intervention to treat chronic wounds before the introduction of antibiotics. He's also pushing for these honey treatments to be utilised in Indigenous communities, as Aboriginal Australians suffer disproportionately higher rates of skin infections than non-Indigenous people. There's really not a lot out there about chronic wounds in Indigenous communities. One thing I noticed was that the most common trends amongst these communities is that they're typically two bacteria, and these are really easily treated with honey. And what are those? So that would be Staphylococcus aureus, also known as golden staph or MRSA. And another one is called Streptococcus pyogenes, sometimes just called strep. And how exactly does manuka honey help with these particular wounds? The good thing about honey is for these communities, it's very easy to transport rather than some antibiotics which need refrigeration. The other part of it is that you can store them at room temperature for Um, numerous years and they don't go bad, whereas antibiotics often need to be brought in fresh, kept refrigerated. And the other really big advantage, the honey works against a wide range of bacteria, whereas most antibiotics are more specific. In these situations where people may not have as much access to medical facilities for proper molecular diagnosis, whereas if we have, we present here in big cities with an infection It's a day to go get your wound swabbed and get your test results back. So the honey is kind of what we call broad spectrum. So we can use it to treat a range of bacteria. Even when these wounds are mixed with different bacterium, it will work to eliminate those and help the wound heal. So let's say that someone has a wound and you're putting the honey on that wound. What's actually happening at the, I guess, microbial level to fix that? So you've got the actual inhibition or elimination of the bacteria. Often in the wound bed, the bacteria form communities called biofilms. So it's not just individual bacteria floating around. It's a mixed population of this bacteria which embed itself in this kind of protective substance. And the honey is effective against that where many antibiotics aren't. And the other side of it being shown that honey actually helps promote wound healing by stimulating the immune system. Wow, really? Yeah. How so? I'm really not (laughs) an expert in that, but my understanding is that half of it comes from the fact that 
it's the bacterial load is going down. So you're able to help the body essentially come in and repair itself with some kind of stimulation. When it comes to some of these like chronic wounds, things like golden staff that you'd mentioned and strep, like those those aren't your average wound. Like those can get pretty serious. Mm-hmm. If someone were to use Manuka honey per se as an antibacterial, would that be used alongside other medications as well to help that wound or can it stand alone? Often in the clinic, honey is kind of seen as a last resort treatment. So like you mentioned with these um, bacteria, they're very bad and sometimes antibiotics don't work anymore. So usually clinicians will use honey as a last resort. There's a lot of case studies where patients have ceased antibiotic treatment and begun honey treatment and the honey alone is able to eradicate the bacteria. But in terms of how the honey is applied, usually it comes in a bandage, so it's more of a wound dressing and may be used side by side with some antibiotic therapy. Why do you think that it's seen as kind of like a backbench therapy? Is it because things like antibiotics have taken precedence or people have only just realised that you can in fact use honey to do this sort of stuff, although that practice has been around around for like millennia anyway? Exactly right. Yeah, it's been around for a really long time. Part of it comes down to the fact that there hasn't been really wide scale clinical studies on how effective honey is. So we only really have limited case studies, maybe small cohorts of 10 to 15 people, whereas um, with these antibiotic clinical trials, they involve thousands of people. But with that said, honey should be used almost before introducing antibiotics. If we're able to use the antibiotics as a last resort, we can prevent bacteria becoming resistant to the antibiotics whereas we can use the honey as like the first line of defense and saving our most kind of precious antibiotics as a last resort. Honey is a naturally derived resource. To be able to get that, it would require, I guess, the practice of farming. Is that sustainable? Do we have enough Manuka honey brewing so that we could then use it potentially as an antimicrobial? That's a really good question because um, that's something that brings in a lot of other questions to the table, particularly around the health of our bee populations. But there's a real shortage of Manuka honey being the traditional term for the plant which the honey comes from. So we're also trying to look for similar honey here in Australia. In New Zealand, there's two species of um, Manuka-type trees, whereas in Australia, we we refer to them as leptospermum trees. In Australia, we have, I believe it's 83 species. So we're also looking for new sources of this. And typically these are not farms or plantations, but come from um, national parks. And that brings in another question of, can we get more access to these areas for our beekeepers? To go back to, you were talking about using it for like Aboriginal or Indigenous populations say there might be a Aboriginal community out there is has already used honey practices. It's about collaborating with that community and knowing how they use it and what's applicable to them. That's exactly right. I think that um, there's so much knowledge there and it's so easy for someone who sits in a research lab all day to assume they know what's best for somebody 
but that's not the case at all. We need to work with people to understand what their needs are and um, what their experiences are and all of the knowledge, like you're saying, tens of thousands of years of knowledge there. It's not something to dismiss, you know. Daniel Buzo, PhD student in the I3 Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. And this story originally aired on Think Health, our sister podcast. Think Health is available on your favourite podcast app and also on iTunes. Just search for Think Health and subscribe to listen to more stories like that one. Thanks for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to Think Sustainability on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Malcolm. I'm Leah Summerglue. See you next week. <laughs>